The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Reading from Daniel chapter 2, verses 31 to 49, picking up as Daniel begins to reveal this dream to Nebuchadnezzar. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron and its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain, and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory, into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them, you, king, are the head of gold." Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with soft clay." And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. And as you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage. But they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever just as you saw that the stone cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, its interpretation sure. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered to him. And the king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings, a revealer of mysteries. For you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and the chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel made a request of the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word of God that you have revealed to us. A perfect word 
from a perfect God. May it work your will in our hearts and lives now. In Christ's name, amen. It's interesting, here we have a prophecy proclaiming what's going to happen in the future. You know, we uh, all, at least I, know that I have a fascination with prediction and foretelling, forecasting what's going to happen uh, in the days to come. It's kind of uh, an ironic fascination because we're interested in what's going to happen, and a lot of times we'll base decisions on these forecasts or prediction of what's going to happen, and yet uh, we all respond with knowing cynicism when it becomes evident that we didn't have any true knowledge of the future. What am I talking about? Well, one uh, popular topic of late that we might see this would be the weather forecast. That has been uh, something you probably have looked at a few times this winter, as I have. And uh, maybe you like to watch the weather. Maybe you're like me and you pull up the 10-day forecast to see what storms are coming this week. Or uh, maybe if you're really like me, you actually like to pull up weather.com's month-long forecast just so you can be sure to know all of the snowstorms that are going to hit us in the next month. In fact, we often make plans. I don't know how many of you were complaining about the three-foot snowstorm that was going to hit us, and we ended up getting a half an inch. Um, And uh, despite our desire to uh, know what's going to happen and act on what's going to happen, we all like to smugly comment when the weatherman's uh, proved wrong and say we wish we could get paid to be wrong 80% of the time, too. Uh, so we have this fascination with prediction, and, and, and yet we don't often rely on it. On perhaps a more significant note, economic policies and decisions of our country are, are regularly made based on forecasts of what's going to happen in our country. I recently read a, a fascinating book review of a book written by uh, the former chairman of the Federal Reserve, Alan Greenspan. And he just wrote this book this past uh, winter, which was something of an autobiography of his time making and determining economic policy in our country. And Mr. Greenspan describes how, as a young economist, he was fascinated by modeling and data. And he was sure that if he could just get the right data and plug them into his models, he would have an accurate prediction of what was going to happen in our economy for the next two decades. Then he could simply make the change needed and keep our country on the right economic track, and everything would be great. And as you might know, because you've lived through those years, uh, Mr. Greenspan was not able to do this very well. And in fact, the book is sort of this uh, gradual confession of all of the ways in which his models proved wrong. Um, and it uh, culminates, the book culminates with the economic downturn in 2008, which Mr. Greenspan says, despite spending an entire lifetime of modeling and forecasting, he had no idea the economic downturn of 2008 was coming. We have this fascination with forecast. We make decisions on what's going to happen in the future, and yet we don't have the ability to actually know what's going to happen. And so here, when we meet Daniel in Daniel chapter 2, giving a prediction or a forecast of the future that is actually correct, it ought to challenge us immediately to say, this is no human guess. This is no human laying out some facts that maybe he could foresee in sort of the cycles of history. This, in fact, is divine revelation, that a man could stand in 6th century B.C. and accurately foretell the next 600 years of the rise and fall of empires. Really, uh, when we come to this prediction of Daniel's, we're really coming to questions that are at the core of who our God is and what this scripture is that we have before us. Much of Daniel in these first chapters are, are stories. 
We've read the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We've read the stories of uh, Daniel refusing wine of the king and eating vegetables and water instead. Or we're about to read the story of Daniel in the lion's den. And these stories are somewhat universally admired for the character qualities they exhibit. And people of a variety of theological backgrounds can say, oh yes, I admire the courage of Daniel in the lion's den or the courage of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But this is no mere story. This is an accurate prediction of 600 years of history. And that begs us to consider what we have in our hands here. An accurate revelation from the God who reveals mystery. An inspired and in true word from the God of gods and the King of kings. And this fact of God revealing truth of future history, future prophecy really is the key to us understanding and interpreting this passage rightly. I want to consider this dream for a few minutes and look at a couple of ways it's been interpreted. And what I want us to notice is that the interpretation of this dream often rests very much on our view of who God is and what Scripture is. If we turn to this dream, what we see before us is this statue, this grand statue of a gold head and and silver chest and arms and bronze thighs and then legs of mixed iron and uh, clay. And Daniel tells us in part of his interpretation that these um, uh, represent different kingdoms or empires in history. The question that commentators begin to bat back and forth then is which kingdoms are these? What kingdoms do these stand for? And what does that tell us about the progress of, of God's kingdom? Very briefly, I want to just mention three ways that this dream has been interpreted um, and look at why that may be so. First, many commentators would look at these four kingdoms and say, well, the dream tells us that the gold head is Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. After Babylon, uh, the Medes took over the empire. In fact, in Daniel chapter 5, with uh, the episode of the handwriting on the wall, we'll hear the story of the Medes taking over Babylon. And that, uh, many commentators would say, is the second kingdom. And the third kingdom, according to this uh, interpretation, is the Persian kingdom. This would be the kingdom that Esther would have been queen in, in the book of of Esther. That would be the Persian kingdom. And then the fourth kingdom, they would say, stands for Alexander the Great's kingdom, which gets parceled up into uh, several kingdoms after Alexander the Great's conquest. One key weakness, if you're reading this carefully, you should immediately question this interpretation, Because you'll note that in the dream, the stone, which is the kingdom of God, comes during this fourth kingdom. In the days of the kings of this fourth kingdom, this kingdom of God begins. Well, Alexander the Great was 350 years before Christ, and his Greek kingdom fell apart and was completely conquered 200 years before Christ came. And so this interpretation of the dream falls prey to a great weakness here. But what we'll see if we start to probe into the interpretation here is that a large majority of the commentators who choose this interpretation want to hold that the book of Daniel itself was written very late in history and was really more of a reflection back on things that had happened earlier. And what these interpreters want to be able to do is say, Daniel wasn't foreseeing the future here. This wasn't a divine miracle This was just sort of a retelling of the history that had already begun to take place um, as as the book of Daniel was being written. 
And so, see, your understanding of Scripture and the ability for God to reveal the future plays a great role in many commentators leaning towards this interpretation of history. The second interpretation, an alternate interpretation, would say much of this is correct, but really that the Medes and the Persians are one empire. They should be held as as one kingdom. Historically, this makes perfect sense because the empire was exactly the same. It was just a switch of kings uh, over the empire. Uh, And so um, in this uh, interpretation, then, the first kingdom would be Babylon. The second would be the Medo-Persian Empire. The third would be Alexander the Great. And the fourth would be Rome. And if you know your history, it should immediately become apparent that Rome, an empire that was divided, was the reigning empire when Christ was born and the church was founded. And so this interpretation historically fits much better um, with um, uh, the, the dream and the details of the dream. This does require, of course, that Daniel would accurately be able to predict future events and would actually be receiving revelation from God about what was going to happen in the centuries to come. But if we believe in a God who reveals mystery, then this is fully possible. I'll mention briefly that the third interpretation would hold that these kingdoms are not specific historical kingdoms, but rather this is a general pattern of history. And this interpretation would say, well, this is describing how kingdoms generally sort of uh, become weaker and less glorious, and humanity is becoming more depraved um, as, as it progresses. And it, I could certainly recognize the truth of the fact that, contrary to, to many uh, who have a hope in human progress, the world is not getting better and better and better and better. It is a generally true sketch of history that uh, glory, and, and as well as the character of men, is, tends to, to descend rather than ascend. So we can recognize truth of that, but I want to be wary of this interpretation because it takes away from the actual historical facts that this dream uh, is, is giving. So I tend to hold towards this second interpretation of Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. But we spent five minutes going over all these details, and if you're not a, a history nerd like me, your mind is probably swimming with details of this kingdom and that kingdom, and why does it even matter what kingdom? Surely the point of this dream is pretty clear that the kingdom of God is going to uh, destroy these kingdoms and, and become the, the, the great mountain that will fill all the earth. So why do these details matter? Why does it matter that we, we look into the details? In fact, some people can become so wrapped up into the details of this dream that they start to say, ah, well, a statue, if it had toes, must have had ten toes. And let's see if we can figure out which king each of those ten toes was. And you can see how quickly you get wrapped up into details here. So why get wrapped up into these details? Well, I would just again highlight what I am interested in is not the details for the details' sake, but I am interested in seeing that we have a God who guides history, who sovereignly has history under his hand, and who actually speaks to his people, and therefore can actually reveal history that is going to come to Daniel in this dream. I'm interested in arguing that what we have here is the very word of God inspired for us and telling us truth that no human being could have known if God did not communicate with man. That's why these details are important in this dream. So if we can nail down those preliminary details and argue that what we have here is the inspired word of God, we can move on to to really see the action 
that's beginning here. Because this statue is not a statue just standing. The statue is standing when a stone, which is cut out from a mountain, comes and smashes this statue. This rock, which is not cut by any human hands, it says. So this, this kingdom that is formed by God himself, this divinely formed kingdom, is going to destroy the kingdoms of the earth and become a great mountain which will dominate the landscape and fill the entire earth. And here we have a picture of the kingdom of God, which will start with the rock himself, Christ Jesus, and will grow into this kingdom of God, the people of God, that will destroy the kingdoms of this earth. When I read this, I can't help but think of some of my own experiences out west. If you have ever been in Washington and seen Mount Rainier, or in Oregon and seen Mount Hood, both of these mountains share a unique uh, feature, and that is that they stand miles above any peak in the surrounding area. And so if you're in, say, Portland, Oregon, and you look out at the skyline, you'll see hills and mountains, and then suddenly Mount Hood will rise, distinct from any other mountain, and tower into the sky. Or if you're in Seattle and you look out at the skyline, Mount Rainier will have the same feature. One mountain that stands distinct apart from all other mountains. I had the opportunity to hike in some of the lower trails of Mount Rainier. And when I hiked up the lower trails of this mountain, it was a perfectly clear day. Not a, not a cloud in the sky. And, and so this mountain with its white peak just ascended straight into the blueness of the sky. And I remembered constantly as we hiked, just constantly looking up at this massive, massive structure that towered around me. And, and it seemed no matter where I looked around me, this mountain was filling my gaze. If I looked this way, this way, this way, this way, wherever I looked was this one single towering mountain. And this is the picture I get in this dream of the mountain of God, which will fill the entire earth. An immense kingdom dominating the area with its power, its presence, and its permanence. That's the vision we get of the kingdom of God as this mountain that God will set up. It's not just a a mountain that God sets up, though. It's not just a powerful kingdom, because there are many other powerful kingdoms. The kingdom of God, according to this dream, is a kingdom that will never end. It is a kingdom that is everlasting, and a kingdom that will destroy all other kingdoms. So we could say that this kingdom of God does not rest on any uh, alliance that it makes with some other people. It doesn't uh, rest on the loyalty of an army, which might turn at any moment and overthrow the ruling power. It doesn't rest on the fear of its subjects, or it doesn't rest on a future heir coming someday. All of these factors that play into human kingdoms and the establishment and permanence of human kingdoms have no role in the kingdom of God. Because the kingdom of God rests on the will of the one true God on the power of the God of gods and the Lord of kings, as Nebuchadnezzar calls him. The kingdom of God is established by the glorious resurrection of our Savior Jesus Christ, who rose and conquered not just other peoples, but conquered death itself in order to establish its permanence. This is the kingdom of God. If we want to inquire into the details of of the rock in this dream, our mind should immediately go to a number of passages throughout Scripture that identify Christ Jesus himself as the rock or the stone upon which God's people will be built. Jesus is identified as a rock or a stone repeatedly. 
Maybe your minds think of Psalm 118, which is one of the most often quoted verses from the Old Testament. It says, The stone that the builders rejected has now become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Or maybe you think of Isaiah 28, 16, in which God says that he has laid a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone in Zion. Or maybe you think of when Jesus is talking to Peter and Peter confesses Christ as the Son of God and Jesus responds that on this rock, this rock of Peter's confession of Christ, the church would be built. See, Christ himself is the rock that God cuts out of the mountain, the stone on which the whole kingdom of God rests and expands. Perhaps for the pattern of this expanding mountain, you might also think of Jesus' parable of the mustard seed, a mustard seed that starts out as a tiny seed and yet grows to be this tree that will house and home the birds of the air. Stop and think about this for a second then. What we're arguing is that this rock, this mountain, is Christ himself. Which means that the dream that God has chosen to reveal to Nebuchadnezzar is not just any dream. God has not just decided to give Nebuchadnezzar this mysterious dream and and see it interpreted. God is proclaiming the gospel to Nebuchadnezzar. God is revealing Jesus Christ, the future hope of the earth, the future plan of, of God himself to break into the feudal kingdoms and establish through his son the rock Christ Jesus, a kingdom that will never end. Daniel's not just interpreting any random mysterious dream. He is interpreting and revealing and declaring the gospel to Nebuchadnezzar and those in Babylon. It is the finished work of Jesus Christ, the solid rock on which we stand, that this dream is ultimately about. Perhaps we could say that the best commentary on Daniel's interpretation of this dream here comes in Paul's words in Ephesians 1, 9, and 10, where Paul says this, God has made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. This is the mystery. This is the gospel that Daniel is now revealing to Nebuchadnezzar. What a great picture of the kingdom of God. Power, presence, permanence. Not just of a mountain, but of Christ Jesus and what he would accomplish. Salvation that secures for you and for me an eternal dwelling place, an eternal security, an eternal power and presence. This salvation would dwarf any beauty of a mountain that we could see. And so just as I stood looking up at the heights of Mount Rainier in Washington State, so we have the opportunity through this dream to gaze and to gaze and to gaze upon the beauty of Christ, the beauty of the mountain of the kingdom of God and what he has done for us. A mountain and a kingdom that towers above us, offering us security, hope, permanence, glory, beauty, calling upon us, wretched sinners, wretched sinners, to hope in a permanent kingdom that is ours through Christ Jesus. What a glorious, glorious revelation this is. We want to ask perhaps some questions of application then. 
I think there's no better way to look at the application of this passage than to look at what this dream would have meant for Daniel. Sure, Nebuchadnezzar sees the gospel. Nebuchadnezzar gets a reminder of who God is and of God's plan that is to come. But what of Daniel? What would this dream have meant to Daniel, one of God's people? Well, remember that Daniel here, and we talked about this in the first half of chapter 2, Daniel is probably only two years removed from exile in in this passage here. We're talking about a young man who, in his mind, are still very fresh images of being taken captive, of seeing his home destroyed, his family perhaps killed, being separated from all of his loved ones, seeing the house of God whom he worshipped destroyed and carried into a pagan land. This is a young man who has gone through two years of suffering, of pain, of trial, of exile. And here's a young man in the midst of this pain, who gets to witness a dream to Nebuchadnezzar, who gets to see a revelation from God of what God is up to. Can you imagine the hope that this would give to Daniel in the midst of his pain and in the midst of his suffering to see a picture of gospel hope of what God is going to do for his people? This dream calls to Daniel in his pain and offers a light of solid hope and hope solid joy to a man who has suffered loss. Maybe there are some of you too who are here tonight having suffered some pain or some loss. Maybe you're going through a physical ailment or illness or, or suffering physical pain. Maybe there are the daily stresses of life such that each day piles up on another and we're buried under the weight of what we're being asked to do. Maybe some of you have lost loved ones or are facing relational challenges that seem to press in on you and leave you in despair and wondering how in the world could God rescue this situation or offer me hope and joy in this situation. I don't know where you are, but if you are in pain or stress or anxiety, this dream has the same hope for you that it had for Daniel. Whatever the details of your pain or your need, the one source of hope for you is the same source for Daniel in this dream, a solid mountain that God himself is cutting out based on Christ Jesus. It is not the hope of some temporary satisfaction like that the pain of your illness might stop for a little bit or that the relationship might be healed or that whatever temporary satisfaction we might look for, this dream is revealing the permanent answer to our pain and our need. This dream is revealing to us the plan of God in Christ Jesus to set up a kingdom where there will be no pain, no sorrow, no suffering, and it is a kingdom that will be yours and mine in Christ Jesus, our Savior. Our view, if we think about it, we think about Daniel. What a comfort that this dream could have been to him to see what God is doing and offering him hope. But Daniel just had this dream to go on a promise of what God would do. We sit here having seen God fulfill this dream. We see not just a picture of a mountain, we see Christ Jesus having actually come and lived and died and risen again and ascended to the right hand of the Father and calling us to be with him. Our view of this plan of God and this kingdom of God is even clearer and more distinct and more beautiful than what Daniel had before him. And so we have Christ Jesus before us, our hope of glory. 
And if we will gaze on this kingdom of God in Christ Jesus, if we will gaze on our hope in Christ, as we were reminded this morning in Dr. Rogers' sermon, if we will gaze on this Jesus, then we have hope to call us out of the pain and the need and the sorrow and the brokenness of our circumstances. This mountain calls us from our pain and our sorrow by the hope of God. But there's the flip side of this as well. See, Daniel is not only suffering loss here. If we look to the end of this chapter, we'll see that Daniel is also surrounded by quite a few pleasures, quite a, quite a few benefits in the kingdom of Babylon. We've talked about how he was being given wine and the delicacies of the court and surrounded by Nebuchadnezzar and his, his Babylonian splendor. As a result of interpreting this dream, Daniel gets a great many gifts, is made ruler over the whole prominent uh, province. In other words, Daniel, while he may have suffered loss, is also being surrounded by every temporal pleasure that one could imagine. The accounts of Babylonian splendor are mind-boggling, and those are Daniel's. So this dream, this picture of the hope of God, not only calls Daniel out of his pain and sorrow, it also calls Daniel from the risk of putting his focus or his attention on the frivolous pleasure that is all around him. See, we have a statue. This head is of pure gold. But this head of pure gold is going to be destroyed and smashed to chaff in the wind by the mountain, the, the glorious kingdom of God. And Daniel has but to look at this dream to be reminded of what the permanent hope is. Daniel's permanent hope, Daniel's hope, is not in, in, the, in the pleasures that are surrounding him in the Babylonian court. Daniel's hope is not in the, the glories of the palace life. Daniel's hope is not having power or authority in, prov- in the province of Babylon. Daniel's hope is in the mountain of the kingdom of God. And so this vision keeps Daniel tethered to his God in the face of temporal pleasures, just as it keeps him tethered to God in the face of pain and sorrow. Perhaps this is the calling for you as well. It's frustrating to me to think about how easy it is for my mind to be pulled and distracted by mundane interest and frivolous pleasures. It's amazing how I can go to my iPad to pull up an article that I want to read, and suddenly an hour or three later I've been flipping through useless news stories. Or... Someone tells me there's a picture I've got to see on Facebook, and an hour later I've perused all of my friends and caught up on the history of everyone I knew 13 years ago, but what have I done with my time? We're about to uh, set off on the grand journey that comes around every March, March Madness. It's stunning how much pleasure I can gain from some college basketball games every month of March. But our attention is grabbed by these pleasures. Our attention is pulled by the things that we delight in. The kingdom of God needs to regain our gaze. The mountain that is the permanent kingdom of God needs to pull our minds and pull our hearts away from the pleasures of these kingdoms that will be destroyed and turn our attention back on, the, on Christ himself. It was C.S. Lewis who argued in his Weight of Glory that our problem is not that we love pleasure too much. Our problem is that we too easily settle for frivolous pleasure. C.S. Lewis said, We have little pleasures all around us, but how much greater is the pleasure that Christ Jesus himself has to offer us 
if we are willing to set our gaze upon him. Lewis set out this analogy. He said, we all tend to be like boys who are so busy building mud pies in a back alleyway that we refuse a beach vacation. The mundane pleasures of our lives are these little frivolous pleasures that we get so taken up in that we do not set our gaze on the permanent pleasure, the great and glorious pleasure of Christ Jesus. Or as John Piper has become famous for saying, we will be most satisfied, we will be most filled with joy and delight when God is our focus, when God is being glorified in us. Well, how do we do this? How do we, how do we practically set our gaze on Christ Jesus? How do we take our delight in the rock of the kingdom of God? How do we, in a day-to-day schedule and routine, focus on Christ in a way that recalls us both from our suffering, pain, and our temporal pleasure? Well, I'm sure if you search or go to your local bookstore, you can find a number of books that will set out the 30-day risk-free guarantee on how to get right with God or the sort of five-checkpoint plan to be right spiritually and have peace and contentment in your life. But that's not what we need. We don't need a 30-day guide to delight in Christ. The way that we gaze on Christ, the way that we grow in our delight of our God are the same ways that we have been told over and over to look to Christ. We need to fill our minds with the words of God that he has revealed to us in Scripture. We need to desperately run to him continually run to him in times of prayer. We need to be with his body, the church, and so together lift him up with his body. These are the ways that we gaze on Christ, focus on Christ, be with Christ. And maybe you're thinking, well, that sounds all very good, but I've read my Bible this week. I prayed this week, and I'm in church now, and I don't seem to be filled with this sort of emotional delight that has me leaping up to shout praises to God every second. Or I don't have this sense of joy and peace that's just flowing through me all the time. So what's missing? I must have missed something in these, in these ways to commune with God. There must be something else that I need to do than just pick up my Bible and read it. But see, reading our Bibles and spending time in prayer are not things that we do in exchange for emotional delight. We don't say, okay, God, I'll read my Bible and you give me some joy and we have this little transaction that happens. That's not what we're asking for when we say to spend time in the Word of God. Spending time in the Word of God and in prayer and with the body of Christ are not things we do to get emotional joy. They are ways that we grow in our relationship with Christ. And it's as we grow in our relationship with Christ, as we grow in our unity with Christ, as we grow to know Christ, to adore Christ, to praise Christ, to be with Christ, it's as that relationship grows that we then receive the joy and the peace and the delight that comes with being with Christ Jesus. It says we habitually see his love and his grace for our life. And as we begin to respond in the love of a relationship with Christ, deepened by our time in prayer and reading of his word, that we begin to be recalled from pain and pleasure and begin to feel the security and see the beauty of resting in the solid hope of the glorious mountain of the kingdom of God. So in the end, our real prayer is not that we get some sort of emotional delight from reading our Bible this week. 
Our real prayer ought to be that of the author Flannery O'Connor. Flannery O'Connor prayed this. Take my soul, dear God, because it knows that you are all it should want. And if it were wise, you would be all it would want. And the times it thinks wisely, you are all it does want. And it wants more and more to want you. It is wanting Christ. It is wanting Christ himself that we get through the word of God, through prayer, that brings us into this relationship and gives us the solid rock and hope and security and joy that we long for in our Savior. That's what Daniel gets as he reveals this dream, this picture of the gospel, recalling him from the pain, recalling him from the frivolous pleasure that he might see the glorious plan of God in Christ Jesus. And really, as we come to the end of this, we can only respond in the same way that every character in Daniel repeatedly responds. In the beginning of chapter 2, when Daniel received God's revelation, he responded by falling to his knees and bursting forth in praise of the God whose character was awesome and whose works were good on behalf of his people. Here at the end of chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar falls to his knees and worships God as the God of gods and the Lord of kings. In chapter 3 that Pastor York talked about last week, Nebuchadnezzar shouted forth the blessings and praise of the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When we see what God is doing and when we set our gaze upon Christ, the only possible response that we can have is to join in that chorus of praise and shout all praise and glory and honor to Christ Jesus, the God of gods and King of kings. And we'll end our time tonight by doing just that. Let's pray before we sing. Father, I thank you that here in Daniel chapter 2, we get a vision of the gospel, a vision of what you are planning to do in history. And that is to destroy the kingdoms of men that fall and rise and fall and rise and fall again, offering temporal pleasure that does not satisfy. But into that cycle breaks the kingdom of God, established on the rock that is Christ Jesus, our Savior. And I pray that as we meditate on him and gaze on him and look upon him and delight in him this week, you would cause our hearts to respond with shouts of praise, our God who is beyond all praise and glory. We pray this through Christ Jesus. Amen.